Hello, and welcome to the Writers Co-op. We are your hosts. I'm Jenny. And I'm Wudan. Hey, Wudan. (laughs) (laughs) How's your summer going? It's good. I think we talked last episode about how I'm moving. So yeah, like I will be living in a new place still as we're recording this. Don't know where that is. But yeah, in September, I'm not going to work much as I prepare for this life shuffle. And then we're taking some weeks off and my husband and I are also going to go on a kid-free vacation. Yeah, it will be glorious, I think. So yeah, all good things. How are you? Yeah, this is also the summer of time off for me. (laughs) My husband told me that loads of people are taking quote unquote revenge vacations for a year of being cooped up without vaccines and thus travel that might be a bit, bit riskier. So everyone is running away and binging on time off. That is a revenge vacation. <laughs> yeah, that resonates so much. My husband and I are just going to go sit on the beach and be like flying, sitting outside, you know, um, just feels good. Totally. When this episode airs, I will probably be in Europe after significant time off Section hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, hopefully with not a lot of wildfire smoke. Mm, That's definitely one of the sad things about Pacific Northwest summers right now. The smoke has been really bad here in Oregon. It's just, yeah, it's, it's scary stuff. It stresses me out. For sure. But the theme for me is just enjoying myself, right, after so many months of being trapped inside forever. (laughs) Yeah, I, yeah, I I really hear that. (laughs) Okay, so this is actually our last episode of season three. It's still wild to me that we've produced three seasons of a podcast during (laughs) this pandemic. Yeah, it is very wild. I'm not 100% sure how I did it. But yeah, I'm I'm just glad there's two of us. I think that's why, uh, why we've kept rolling. (laughs) Totally. So hopefully y'all listening got a sense of how coaching works during the season and how we work with clients to troubleshoot their businesses. Yep. So this is our last coaching episode. Who did you talk to this week to round out the season, Wudan? On this show this week is Joshua Eaton. Joshua is an investigative reporter based in Washington, D.C. So prior to freelancing, he was on investigative teams as CQ Roll Call and Think Progress, and his work has been published in NBC News, The Washington Post, ProPublica, The Boston Globe, and elsewhere. Here's that conversation with Joshua. Hi, Joshua, and welcome to the Writers Co-op. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you bet. I'm excited to dig in. And for our listeners, (laughs) I feel like this comes with a disclosure. Joshua and I have known each other for a while on Twitter and the internet and the freelance journalism community. Today, I'm pretty excited to talk a little more about the inner workings of your freelance business. Thank you so much. I'm excited too, if a little nervous. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's the beauty of these meetings is to confront all those things because sometimes that's what's holding us back and our freelance businesses as well. So why don't you start, Joshua, and tell us what constitutes your freelance business right now? What does it look like? What services are you offering? How much are you working? How much vacation are you taking? Things like that. So I right now have a real hodgepodge For about six months, I was full-time basically filling in for someone who was on leave at an NPR affiliate doing night-side digital editing for them. I was doing that as I was continuing to do freelance reporting, freelance writing. That ended in May. Since then, I've been doing some contract reporting for Sojourners, which is a, a progressive Christian magazine. And then I taught one two-week session of a summer high school journalism workshop. I'm doing another one next week. 
those are kind of my anchor gigs right now. And then I'm continuing to do freelance, basically investigative reporting along with that. Cool. That's quite a mix of things. So that's helpful for me to know. What is your workflow like? Can you share how much money you're making from these things just to get a sense of how all of these different services funnel into you, your business? When I was working with the NPR affiliate, that was full time. It was 40 hours a week, $29 an hour. And then the contract reporting I'm doing right now, it's about 10 to 20 hours a week at $30 an hour. The teaching that I'm doing, the two weeks I just did and the two weeks I'm about to do, that is about $3,300 a session, which it's like full time for two weeks. So it comes out to a little over 40 an hour. I think that I am on track this year to make between sixty dollars and $70,000 before expenses and taxes. Right now, probably on the lower end of that, probably closer to sixty or sixty-five. Of course, it just depends on how the rest of the year pans out. In terms of actual reporting and writing, I've gotten $2 a word for a pretty involved months-long investigative project this year. And I've gotten a little less than a dollar a word for projects as well. So it just varies depending on the project and depending on the outlet. In terms of vacation time, I'm not really taking vacation time. I have been working a lot and I'm sort of at a place where I feel like whether out of necessity or out of of anxiety is unclear to me, but I don't really feel like I can turn down work. So I sort of say yes to everything and would like to be at a place where I feel like I can build in and schedule in more vacation time. Yeah, definitely. So what does an ideal business for you look like? Because I think different things bring us to coaching, right? Uh, I'm curious what you're hoping to work towards and what can we talk through this session? There are sort of two sides of it for me. There's the sort of work I would like to be doing and the sort of pay I would like to be making which hopefully cross paths at some point. In terms of the sort of work I'd like to be doing, I'd like to be doing more investigative and more long form, more magazine writing. And in terms of pay, I'm really fortunate right now that I'm, I'm making a decent living freelancing. I know a lot of people who aren't, but I would like to be more secure in that, have a little bit more of a buffer, be able to take more time off and not have this sort of nagging anxiety about, for example, I have this contract reporting thing now, and it runs through August, you know, and there's always the sort of anxiety about like, well, what happens after August? I would like to have a little less of that. My last staff reporting job, although I was there eight months before the pandemic hit and a whole bunch of people were laid off, including my entire team, So I never actually made my full salary there, but my full salary was $80,000 a year with benefits. If I could be making something comparable to that freelancing, I'd be very, very happy. Totally. Do you have a sense of what that math looks like in terms of what you should be charging if you're aiming to hit $80K a year? I don't. We can do that math right now if that's helpful. That would be helpful, but I I also, I guess I don't really know since so much of it is piecework. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I guess I don't know what charging means because I, you know, I do some work that's by the hour. I do some work that's by the word. Yeah. I have frankly no idea what the hourly breakdown for stories I write is. Yeah. I think it's good to get a grasp on what you need to be making generally. So let's take 80K as a hypothetical, right? How many weeks of vacation would you ideally take in your freelance business? Probably three, if you count the holidays. All right. Let's just say 48 weeks. 48 total working weeks. And then how many hours a week would you like to work? 40. 40? Mm -hmm. Usually, you know, 40 billable hours is quite a lot for a freelancer. Like I work 35 at a top end, but I'm not, (laughs) I'm not billing all of those 35 hours, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, so let's do some math. And that's going to be what I'm basically doing is 80,000 divided by 48. And that gives me 16670, 1670 divided by 40 hours a week. So the math tells me that you're not going to work for less than 4175. And I'm going to actually round that all the way up to $50 an hour. And the reason why I do that, you know, I call this a rounding error because these rounding errors are pretty important. If we are always rounding up, (laughs) it's more likely for us to hit our income goals compared to if we're rounding down. Does that make sense? So I would start thinking in terms of this hourly rate. And you're right, there's a lot of different ways that people charge, right, or want you to charge, whether it's by word or per hour. But I want you to think about every project in terms of your hourly rate, how much time you would have to spend towards that. And therefore, given somebody's budget, can you finish this amount of work within, say, 20 hours if a client only has a budget of $1,000? That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Tell me what went through your mind when I kind of said that. I know it's sort of a mindset shift and also a little maybe counterculture (laughs) to how the industry likes to pay us. So yeah, tell me, walk me through what you were thinking. I guess I'm I'm just not used to thinking of anything in these terms, primarily because I feel like this is the wrong thing to say on the writer's co-op, but I'm, (laughs) I'm I'm mostly used to thinking of like, okay, what can I get? What does that mean? What can you get? You know, like I don't have anything lined up for September. So if someone offers me something in September and it's not like an insulting price, I'll probably take it. Mm -hmm. Right. There are a few things I want to break down here. The first is I'd love for you to get to a point where you're always back calculating what you would get paid for a project and the time and the money involved in the same way that I did when, you know, I made up the very classic example of client has a thousand dollars. Can you do the entire assignment in 20 hours or less? What would it take for you to get into that mindset? Do you think? God, I don't know. A a whole different life. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't, I don't say that to be glib. Uh, I don't say that to be glib. It definitely is a, a, a shift for me. So I come from a background without a lot of money. I'm first person in my family to graduate from college. Also spent a long time really hustling in the freelance world. And so I tend to be sort of reactive and anxiety driven when it comes to money. I tend to be driven more by a fear of not having it than by goals, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And thanks for being vulnerable and sharing that because I think how we're socialized and our upbringing has a lot to do with our 
baggage, for lack of a better word, when it comes to money feelings. But I think the crazy thing for me about running a freelance business is really being very oriented and organized and tracking my time and making these calculations because the way that I've explain it to myself is that if I don't, I'm literally going to go broke or I'm going to overwork and I'm not going to have a good accounting of where my time and energy goes towards. And that's overall detrimental, not only to my business, but also my relationships and my mental health. All of these things to me are very interconnected. So what would it take for you to, I think, lessen some of that worry with regards to money and acting out of scarcity, do you think? The, the honest answer is I don't know. I think part of it would be just knowing that it's possible for me, if that makes sense. I'll say like, you know, $50 an hour. I've never, I've, I've never actually made that in my life. You know, I've never had a year where I broke $65,000 gross in the year. You know, I mentioned my previous salary. Obviously it was, it was spread over a couple of years and I was only there for eight months. And so the way it actually turned out in terms of money I actually made was quite a bit less. So I think just seeing that it's possible, because I definitely go back and forth on whether this whole freelancing thing is even viable. But what are you searching for when you wonder that? Whether it's a concrete opportunity or what is the feeling that you're searching for? when you wonder if freelancing is viable for you in the long term? Part of it is a concrete opportunity. Mm -hmm. Honestly, part of it is a lot of the people I know who are most successful at freelancing, they do things that I've never done before that I have questions about journalistically. Mm -hmm. For example, doing brand work. I've never done it before. I'm sort of on the fence about it just because I'm always worried about conflicting myself out of stories or future stories mm-hmm. or beats. And for example, there was a meetup of freelancers at the Investigative Reporters and Editors Conference this year. And it was primarily new J school grads who were interested in freelancing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then a handful of people who are actually freelancing who are mostly making money doing things that aren't journalism. So it was a little discouraging. A little discouraging for you or for them, you think? I don't know about that. It was definitely discouraging for me. Hmm, mm-hmm. I, can, I can speak to that. Yeah. I think this is sort of the ongoing battle of especially investigative reporting where conflicts of interest, I think, matter a lot more than other types of journalism is this battle between do you want to be pure and do noble journalistic work or do you want to freelance and make money that makes you comfortable and enables you to live the life that you want to live? I actually don't think those are at odds with one another. And I'm curious to hear your reaction to that. It's like so many things, honestly, in this industry. There's two questions in my mind. There's the question of what I think is at odds and what I worry might come back to bite me down the line when I apply for XYZ job or I want to work with XYZ editor, if that makes any sense. Totally, it does. And I, in response to that, I think you work for yourself now. 
what you do and you have a strong moral sense of conflicts of interest, people are just going to have to trust you on making the best decisions for you and your business. And, and I'm being serious. And I think a lot of editors I've worked with at newspapers from the New York Times to magazines, etc., all really understand that. I don't think they're really... I don't know if it's enough for me to tell you maybe you're overthinking it because I do think <laughs> we tend to get in our own heads because honestly, like I think the mindset to run a successful freelance business is to do it your way. So what is the Joshua Eaton way is what I'm asking. Oh, gosh. And you don't you don't have to answer that right now because I think it requires deep thought, right? Especially, you know, you're talking about branded content work. How can you do that in a way that doesn't conflict with your journalistic work? The things that helped me the most really is deciding to cover something that's interesting, but pretty out of my comfort zone of investigative or enterprise reporting and stick with that for a while and see how it feels. And if it sucks, I can let go of that corporate client. If it works for me, I can continue on that path. I think there is no big commitment to make. Everything is very iterative and we can change course if after a few months we realize that it just isn't working or it doesn't jive well with us. So I'm curious when I say that, how does that sound to you? Just thinking of all of this as an experiment, right? And that you can swap things in and out at any given time. It sounds, it sounds okay. <laughs> I'll confess, I'm also really hesitant to do branded content work, for example, mostly because I just hate so much of it. You know, like I read press releases and I hate them. I read most corporate PR copy and I hate it. Like, it sounds like someone's trying to sell me something and there's a bunch of buzzwords that don't really mean anything. I mean, maybe it's just that I'm not familiar enough with the varieties of it that are out there. But the idea of doing that, like, makes me want to go get my welding certificate or something. I think what I'm trying to ask is, what are some ways you think you can build a stable income because when I hear you talk about being afraid to say no to something or that you don't have anything lined up for September, you're probably just going to take whatever comes your way. My question for you really is how can you build in stability for yourself? And the thing is, I've heard you talk a lot about other services too that you can offer, like teaching and editing and also research. How can you? leverage those skills because you're right and I do investigative reporting too it's a very long slog and I need a ton of other stuff to basically buffer my hourly rate for those investigative pieces so as part of your homework if I were coaching you regularly I'm gonna send you a huge list of possible other quote unquote side gigs whatever you want to call them and see which ones stick out to you because they're going to be different you know everyone has different anchor clients and they make different decisions on how they want to diversify their client base and that's normal and I think just being able to see that slew of options would be helpful for you to also decide what's going to work for you keeping in mind that these things can change over time, right? And also when you go into picking up those new clients, when you offer them th your new services, go in with your rates, right? And that could be a good place to try and to start, especially as we look forward into fall. How does that sound? That sounds great. That sounds terrific. And really, I think I've sort of been thinking about it in terms of either 
I'm just doing writing, reporting, and editing, or I'm doing that plus branded content, for example, which I really don't want to do. I've thought of those as kind of the only two options, and I haven't thought too broad outside of that. Yeah, totally. I think there's a big range of what quote unquote branded content can mean. Is it writing for universities? It's not just for brands, right? So university magazines and newsletters, for instance, is another form of non-journalistic writing. I think there's a lot to explore out there and it could be a worthy experiment for a period of time, right? Because what I'm really hearing is Without the work that you have now in two months or three months, you go back down to zero. So how can you build up not even like your your goal income for every month, but just enough for you to at least live on? And that's the thing I would love for you to try prioritizing because I think it's going to funnel into how you say yes or no to other assignments, right? Because once you take on some stable work, the amount of time you're working that month has already decreased. You're already a little booked. And so I think limitations also make us work better and work smarter. And do you think about opportunity cost at all when you're making decisions on taking on assignments or not? I do. I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Walk, walk me through your thought process on that. I try to take things that even with the full-time editing gig I had with this NPR affiliate, I knew that I would still have some time to do freelance stories. The story I did on COVID vaccine waste with NBC, all of that reporting I did while I had this other job. You know, I knew it would be full-time, but it it wouldn't be the kind of full-time job where I wouldn't have any time or energy for anything else. I knew I probably wouldn't be able to do as much writing or reporting as if I didn't have that, but the stability for a few months was worth it to me. Definitely. And The other thing I would add to all of that is that having a more full-time job also takes away from other work that you could be doing. So when I think about opportunity cost, and I tell this to a lot of my coaching clients too, is that the opportunity cost increases the value of what you're providing to a client, right? Because it's not just the value that you're providing, but it's the added value of you not being able to do something else. And usually that is a good enough rationale for me to charge more. What do you think about that mindset change? I think it sounds nice. I mean, in terms of actually shifting my mindset into that, that's another, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's a big shift because I do have something of a, a scarcity mindset around these things. Can you tell me about a time that you said no to something and another opportunity came up? Or if you negotiated for a little more and the client was able to give you what you were negotiating for, tell me a story about either one of those times or both. Well, I, I again, wrong thing to say on the, the writer's <laughs> co-op. I sure <laughs> don't think I've ever negotiated any, whether it's a salary or a, or a rate ever once. The first staff job I got, I was freelancing at the time and was just barely scraping by in a a pretty low-cost lifestyle. And so really needed something better. It was a significant pay raise from what I was making. And so, yeah, I I just accepted the, the salary I was offered. The second staff job I had, it was also a raise, and the place I was at was shutting down. And I knew that 
I had maybe a couple of months before there were going to be mass layoffs. So I was definitely in duress. Before then, I was freelancing and, and scraping by and, and really, really hustling and sort of felt like I had to take whatever I could get in order to keep all the plates spinning. And then since then, have fallen a little bit back into that mode, although not as much. I will say that I have, and this feels like professional growth to me. Recently, there was a staff job that I had an interview for and great staff job, great outlet, good pay. I actually took myself out of the running just because it didn't feel like a good fit. I thought I wouldn't be happy there and they wouldn't be very happy with me. And I am at a point, particularly with staff jobs, where whatever struggles I'm having as a freelancer, I'm making decent pay and I'm doing work that I'm proud of and that I enjoy doing. And so for staff jobs, at least, I'm not looking for a stepping stone. I'm also, I've been in the industry a while and I'm not 20 something anymore. And if I take another staff job, I want it to be somewhere where I want to be for a long time and they want me to be there for a long time too. I don't want it to be just a stepping stone onto the next thing. Yeah, saying no to that staff job is progress. And I almost wonder, you know, it's not that if you say no or defer or ask for more on something, that nothing else will ever come your way. I think what I'm hearing you say is that you've never actually tried that. So my question for you is, what would it look like for you to try in the smallest way possible? I don't know. I don't know what it would look like. Yeah, so I would think about, you know, some ways I think about it are, you've worked with a client for a while, you would like to increase your rate. You have a teaching appointment, you would like to increase your rate just by a little, like 10%. You have an assignment and you would like the outlet to cover your fee for transcription. You want to negotiate something in a contract. Negotiate something small. It doesn't have to be 2x the going rate that a publisher is giving you for an investigative story, but something small. And I want you to keep a log of all these instances where you've tried and then something happened, (laughs) right? Sometimes people say yes, sometimes people say no. But I think about getting ourselves out of the scarcity mindset requires us to put a mirror back onto us of showing us where the times that we've tried something hard to us and succeeded in getting the thing, that helps us build this muscle of confidence and abundance. And these are all things that we practice because we're not all, (laughs) I am not a naturally confident person. It has come to me through every single negotiation, every single new client that's come my way. I see that as a new opportunity. So I'm curious, what do you think when I say that? Like, what do you think of the idea of treating every new client or an assignment as a way to flex that abundance muscle? I like it. You're also, I, I, I can tell that you're uh, playing to my love of spreadsheets. <laughs> yeah, make a spreadsheet. I love it. Whatever it is that helps you look at it like every day, I would challenge you to log at least four things every single month or at least one thing a week. So you drew, you know, an editor comes back with edits on a Friday night and wants you to do something by Sunday night and you can say no. Like, I think that's also a flex <laughs> because you're drawing boundaries around your work and how you want to value your your time off of work. And, you know, like that editor isn't going to be like, Joshua is a terrible reporter. I'm never working with him again. I bet you that would never happen. In my experience and many others, the 
more boundaries that freelancers set and stand up for themselves, the more respected that they actually are by their colleagues. Jenny and I call this the confidence log. I can send you a template for it. If you want to make your own spreadsheet, that's also great. But I think constantly adding to that list and then looking to that list ultimately has made me and many other coaching clients realize like, oh, I am capable. Oh, it isn't the end of the world if I say no, because more opportunities do come my way. That's wonderful. That's terrific. Yeah. So let me kind of bring this full circle, right? Because we've talked a lot about kind of seemingly random, not really intertwined things. But I think, you know, if I had to draw a theme around what you're looking for, Joshua, it seems like what you're looking for is stability. So you can do the investigative work that you want to do. And without that stability, you usually enter into scarcity. Did I get that right? I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. And I also think that it takes some I mean, for any work, but especially for investigative work, it takes some stability because investigative work can have such ups and downs and it's not something where you can rely on volume at all. Sure. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, I will send you some business planning worksheets to determine how much of your stable income should come from something that is not investigative journalism. And I want you to use that calculation to determine how much time you have for that work that you're, you know, pitching or digging deep, filing FOIAs, all of that. I think figuring out that balance is pretty key. And we have a few worksheets so you can work on through that. With regards to the stable income part, I will send you also the, we call it gig bingo, I believe. (laughs) It's just a list of, for you to see your options on what that stable gig can look like. And then finally, when you do pitch journalism outfits, think about the project rate that you're getting offered and mirror that up to your desired hourly rate and set, you know, figure out how much time it'll take. And is that time frame reasonable? Because you've been doing this a while too. You probably have a pretty good sense of how you work. And so, right, does the time and money match up to how much you're being offered? And if not, can you ask for more? What would that look like? So I think all of this is actually pretty intertwined into your larger goals of make more money, continue the work you do, and also look for something that gives you a bit of stability. No, that sounds that sounds terrific. Can I ask you, I know we're probably running short in time, can I ask you about something? Totally, go for it. One other thing I haven't done that I've had in mind that I should do, and actually attended a, a great webinar a few months ago with you about it, is tapping into fellowships and grants more. Yeah. Because, at least in my experience, it is hard to get a word rate, especially for investigative stories that actually matches the amount of time and reporting that goes into them. Mm-hmm. It seems like to me that grants and fellowships are a way to have that math work out a little better. But they're something I'm really just beginning to dip my toe into. Yeah, I would say some fellowships that give stipends can be really instrumental in just getting you paid for you to do the background work for a given story. Some fellowships or grants are solely expenses based. If you have to go somewhere to report, that's the structure of the Pulitzer Center grant. But there are a small handful that would give you space to chase something pretty big without a commission already at hand. So I will say that. And then 
The other ways that I think about subsidizing this work is making a list of places that pay high rates. So you mentioned you wrote for somewhere that's $2 a word. What would it look like to continue that relationship? What does it look like for you to make a list of all other places that pay $2 a word or more? And then so once you have a story idea, you can hold that spreadsheet, I know you love spreadsheets, up to you and, you know, help you decide who to pitch, right? Because then all of a sudden you're not wasting time on places that pay less than that. There's no doubt that investigative work should be valued more than other types of journalism. And so I would be a little more boundary steady around that stuff as well. And the third way and you know, this is how I do it. And I'm not saying this is the right way. But a lot of my non journalistic work, I make a few hundred dollars per hour on those assignments. And that strongly boosts my hourly rate. I mean, it's an average, right? So average is all all the dollar amounts divided by hours worked. And I find that those really high paying hourly rates also subsidize my work enough, right? So if I don't want to make any less than $100 an hour, and that's just a round number, journalism, I might get to 70 or something. But if I have a non-journalistic client that pays me 250 an hour, my hourly rate is still very much skewed on the higher end. And I can worry a little less about the $70 an hour. It's not going to put me, you know, on the streets. I just might not be able to pay for another, you know, five skeins of yarn or something. Um, (laughs) Those are some ways that I think about the math. Grants are great. So is just like finding a place that pays you a ton of money. And then I think the thing is just having to draw really strict boundaries about how you spend that time, right? Which I think is a whole separate conversation that we don't have time for today, unfortunately. And then the third is just balancing out with extremely high paying work. This has been so helpful. Thank you so, so much. Yeah, for sure. I hope we talked through a few things that give you options. I think when you said even that you felt limited and that you can do writing or editing or research, but there's so much more out there. And I think, you know, you also have a wealth of skills to offer different types of clients. Well, thank you so much. And and thank you for, I know I'm a little bit of a recalcitrant guest, so I, I appreciate you walking me through all this and helping me out. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for coming on. And I'll follow up with a bunch of worksheets, like I said. Thank you so, so much. Awesome. Whew, there was a lot to unpack in that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think journalists and especially investigative reporters feel like they have a moral code to abide by. And sometimes they feel that conflicts with ways to make money. Yeah, I hear that idea so often that money is somehow antithetical to journalism or to creative work. Like if you're being paid well, you're sullying your work. That is, I would say, a very widely accepted industry belief, but it's also a very limiting belief. When my clients share this one with me, I always say, you know, this idea is not really good or bad, this idea that money and creative work or journalism are adverse to one another, but is it working for you? <laughs> like, like, is it helping you? Is there evidence to support that money gets in the way of making good journalism? Like, would there be a different way of thinking about how money and journalism could interact? Because I just think, you know, from this podcast, from working together with Dan, from all the people we've met, like, there are many, many, many ways to structure a journalism career and many ways to think about money within your business. Mm -hmm. I often feel like journalists live in this either or world with money and moral purity, even though journalism will never love you back. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. 
it's a job. <laughs> yeah. And I think people, you know, imagine journalism with a capital J, or if they're not doing that, they're selling out to corporate America. Yeah. I know journalism, you know, this gray area can feel complicated, but there are lots of ways for journalists to make money by offering services that don't feel troublesome, but then also help you live your life and pay your bills and create the work you want, which is hard to do when you are super, super anxious. So, you know, I could yell about this on my soapbox all day. Totally. So I passed along some worksheets and homework to Joshua, which our listeners will get this week as a booster pack. Some of them we've incorporated into previous episodes, but special to this one is a worksheet on figuring out how much of your freelance income could come from something stable and getting a sense of what that service could be and how much time and space that will open up. I also have a template spreadsheet for tracking my assignments to make sure I'm not overbooking myself on too much of one thing, whether it's too much journalism and writing or too many commission projects from other clients who I'm not pitching. Mm, sounds like math heaven. <laughs> Honestly, yes. <laughs> I think it helps people to be able to look at these hard numbers. I mean, we've talked about getting anchor clients. I think the big challenge for freelance journalists who want something stable is making sure that the stable gigs aren't taking away from their long-term or creative work. Yeah, and that is a hard balance to strike, right? I think creative and passion-based work is often the first thing to go for me when I'm stressed. Like, I'm always fighting to keep my creative writing work alive, so I have to be really intentional about the ways that I block time on my calendar to make both sorts of projects happen, both the type that are making a lot of money and the ones that I just care about really deeply. So I think at the moment I actually have like a, a good balance it feels like, but it's only because I'm working on a limited schedule. So I just think you're right. Like seeing those numbers on a spreadsheet is helpful because you really have to say consciously to yourself, what is the long game, right? And how can you both provide for yourself and work towards that? I mean, do you do this, Wudian? How have you handled the balance between both sorts of projects? You know, I've struggled with this for a long time. And then I realized the issue was that I didn't have a good way to track it, to look at everything at a glance so I can balance all this stuff out. And that's frankly how I ended up with that spreadsheet I mentioned. It's a time and money equation. It can't not be. Yeah, I agree. When I work with clients on this, I'm often saying like, okay, what percent of your time do you want to spend on this sort of project and that sort of project? So you can kind of look at, at the end of the month, did my project spread actually meet that like 30-70 ratio I'm going for, whatever, right? But I think you're right. You're always choosing time or money right? And the idea is that you do have a choice. So you just want to make it an intentional choice. Well, Jenny, we should leave our listeners with that and head out. Yes, I agree. So to all of y'all who are listening, we will likely be back <laughs> in the future. You know, this is our last episode. We're trying to figure out what the Writers Co-op is going to look like in the fall and the winter. We will be around in different ways, rest assured, but we are going to take a little bit of a break from producing audio just for a little bit. And if you're a Patreon subscriber, you'll get an exclusive Q&A episode in just a few weeks. Be on the lookout for that. Awesome. Well, I will see you later, Wudan. Bye, Jenny. Season three of the Writers Co-op is made possible by you, our listeners. Susan Vallett is our editor and Jen Monier works as our producer. And the show is written and co-hosted by me, Wudan Yan and Jenny Gritters. Thank you.